Acts chapter 2, and we're going to read just a portion of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, but we will put it into context as we go through this. Acts chapter 2, our text is going to be verses 22 through 24, and then after reading it, I'm going to ask Jay if he would to ask the blessing on the reading. Acts 2, starting at verse 22, you men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held of it. I want to speak to you this morning about the decisive power of Christ's resurrection because I can tell you as a preacher there is no greater responsibility and at the same time no greater delight than to stand before a group of men and women and children and proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the pivotal event in completing Christ's work of salvation. If you are saved, it is not that you are a Christian by believing in the birth of Jesus. You are not saved by believing that Jesus lived or even that he died on the cross. An individual who believes in the miraculous birth, the faultless life, and the vicarious death of Jesus Christ must also believe that Jesus rose from the dead, securing eternal life, for all who believe. It is good and right for us to set aside this day to remember the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Although I want to be clear about the time frame in this text. Acts 2 is not describing the events of Resurrection Sunday. Acts 2 is taking place not quite two months after Resurrection Sunday. It is, however, very much focused on the implications of that glorious event. To just give a brief review of the events which happened at the end of the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus, the week before Resurrection Sunday, the Lord Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem triumphantly. He presented himself as the, the righteous king bringing salvation to his people and then began the final week of his uh, ministry, the, the, the week that he spent healing and, and teaching and eventually keeping the Passover in Jerusalem with his disciples. 
the religious authorities at that time continued to get more and more angry with Jesus as sort of daily confrontations escalated the tension between the Lord Jesus and the Jewish leaders. Yet they didn't dare arrest him among the adoring crowds in Jerusalem, so they decided to wait until after Passover when things will have calmed down a bit. That is, until one of Jesus' closest disciples, Judas Iscariot, approached the chief priests with a plan to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Judas offered to arrange a time and place where Jesus could be arrested away from the crowds of Passover. And so one night, in the quiet and solitude of the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is betrayed and he is arrested. And then during that night, he was beaten and condemned. He was taken to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, the next morning to be executed. Though Pilate said, this man has done nothing wrong, he still delivered him to the soldiers to be beaten and crucified. And Pilate was right. Jesus had done nothing wrong at all, but there was plenty of fault in you and I. The Son of God took the place of sinners and was nailed to a cross. The the sky turned black as the light of the world gets extinguished by human hands. His death was confirmed by the Roman soldiers who grabbed a spear and stabbed it through his side all the way to his heart. And his body was taken down off the cross and quickly buried in a borrowed tomb. And his disciples returned to the city depressed, heartbroken, confused. And then after three days, Sunday morning at dawn, a few of the grief-stricken women who followed Jesus as his disciples visit the gravesite. They find the stone has been rolled away, the tomb is empty, and there is an angel telling them, he is not here, he is risen. That's when the fun and chaos really began. Jesus appeared to some of those women. Later, he appeared to a couple of disciples walking down the road to Emmaus. He appears to a group of disciples who were gathered together in an upper room. In fact, the the writer of Acts is a man named Luke, who is by profession a doctor, and he conducted an investigation, and his conclusion is in Acts 1-3, is that Jesus showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, was seen of them 40 days speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. The rumor, you can imagine, had begun to spread around the city of Jerusalem that Jesus was alive. The tomb was certainly open for everyone to see. The word began spreading throughout Jerusalem and sort of whispered tones because certainly you don't want to be caught talking about this by the Pharisees or the chief priests or even the Romans. Is it possible that this man who did miracles, this man Jesus who had raised others from the dead, did he come back to life? For 40 days, Jesus met with his disciples affirming his resurrection after his death. 
Later on, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, he at one time appeared to over 500 people at one time. And after that 40 days, Jesus walked his disciples back to the edge of the Mount of Olives, the same place where he had begun his triumphal entry into the uh, city of Jerusalem. And at this point, he begins his triumphal exit from this earth. Jesus told them that they would be his witnesses throughout the world, but to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit of God moves them. And with that statement, the clouds carry him off into heaven. And so to be clear, when, when Acts 2 begins, there is nobody making bold declarations or loud statements in the city of Jerusalem. The disciples of Jesus are are quietly huddled away, about 120 of them, in a single large room, very likely the same room at which the Last Supper took place. They were all considered uneducated and untrained. They probably hoped that if the Spirit moved them, as Jesus said that it would, that it would do it in some subtle way to a few limited people, to maybe some special people, but Instead, what happens is one of the busiest days on Jerusalem's calendar, the day of Pentecost, the disciples are filled with the Spirit of God and sent out into the busy city streets. Pentecost, also known as the Feast of Weeks or the the Feast of Harvest, is held exactly 50 days after the Passover in order to thank God for the grain harvest. Faithful Jews would travel long distances to come into the city of Jerusalem at this time. And on on this particular Pentecost, the Lord Jesus had, had drawn in many Jews to his church in order to hear the gospel and reap a great harvest of souls. Our text finds the Lord's church out in the streets of Jerusalem on that busy day. They're in the middle of the city that had just murdered their master and they begin to proclaim that Jesus, who was shamefully executed and crucified as a criminal, is in fact the only hope for righteousness before God. The main thrust of their message that day and throughout the book of Acts actually is that Jesus is the only means to eternal life because Jesus is the only one who has defeated death. You know, with sort of like a a dispassionate precision, the Romans had crucified thousands and thousands of others. They were really good at it, but none of the others came back from the dead. Starting on this day with this very sermon in Acts 2, the disciples of Jesus take this message of their master's resurrection from the dead and spread it throughout the world. The good news of Jesus' resurrection becomes their hammer and every member of humanity, they look at them like they're a nail. God is going to use this word to spread salvation through the city of Jerusalem, through the surrounding region of Judea, throughout Asia Minor, the, the major cities of the Roman Empire, including Rome itself, and then it goes from beyond all that is known into the great unknown. By the time you get to Acts chapter 17, there are Roman officials in distant cities complaining that the disciples of Jesus have, quote, 
turned the world upside down talking about the resurrection of Jesus. So this morning, I want to look at the words of Peter. It is just a small part of the sermon that got all of that started. And we'll see that God has made the power of Jesus' resurrection the decisive difference between eternal judgment or eternal life. What we'll see in this text is three simple ways that God has authenticated the message of Jesus. He authenticates the gospel by Jesus' life. He authenticates the gospel by Jesus' death. And he authenticates the gospel by Jesus' resurrection. Listen again as Peter is, is standing in front of the crowds in the streets of Jerusalem. And remember, he's preaching to some of the very same people who demanded Jesus' execution. Acts 2, 22 through 24. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and with wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he could be held by it. First, God authenticates Jesus by his life. I I, I like how Peter starts off by demanding their attention in verse 22. Man, if that worked, I would do it every Sunday. Just listen up. If you read the whole chapter, you'll know he already has their attention. Before this, the Holy Spirit of God had moved among the disciples and enabled them to speak in tongues, the actual native languages of the many visitors that were in Jerusalem for Pentecost that day. The events of Pentecost are this divine marvel of of influence by the Holy Spirit. Verses 9 through 11 lists a minimum of 16 different languages uh, that, that the crowd is just stunned to hear the disciples, these uneducated, uninformed people, start speaking. They say in verse 8, how does every man hear in his own birth language? They're amazed, it says in verse 12, and confused as to what it meant. And now, no doubt, some of them recognize these men as disciples of Jesus Christ and immediately attempts to invalidate anything they're saying in verse 13 by saying, look, what's happening here is that they're all drunk. So Peter stands up and issues his first demand for attention in verse 14. Sometimes a preacher struggles with how to begin a sermon, but the Holy Spirit did that for Peter. The illustration was already out there on the streets. Peter just had to open his mouth and explain it. And so he refers to the Old Testament. He says this is a fulfillment of prophecy that great signs and wonders would attend the coming of the Messiah. And this proves that the Messiah has come so that in verse 21, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the explanation. And then he starts the sermon by sort of daringly demanding their attention a second time. Not because they're out there like drifting off to sleep in the pews, 
but because their mind is now focused on this idea of the coming of the Messiah, Peter is prepared to proclaim exactly who that Messiah is. You want to know who the Messiah is? See verse 22? Well, listen up. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. These people before Peter out in the streets of Jerusalem, they were not sure who the Messiah was, but they were positive who it was not. It's not that Jesus of Nazareth. It's not that carpenter from Galilee. It's not that man that the religious rulers keep telling us is blaspheming God's name. It's not that guy who's, who's leading around disciples that just look like a, a gang of fishermen and tax collectors. It can't be the man who we just saw condemned to die as a criminal on a Roman cross. Peter, if you want us to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, you got to convince us. Well, convincing them is exactly what Peter intends to do in this sermon. So he begins with what they know at the end of verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves know. Jesus' ability and willingness to perform miracles was an established fact. So established, it was widely accepted as true, and Peter tells them, you know this. Even Nicodemus, the Pharisee who had come to Jesus at night back in John chapter 3, came to him saying, look, we know that you're a man sent from God because nobody can do the miracles you're doing unless God has sent him. What kind of miracles did Jesus do? (laughs) He turned water into wine. He gave sight to the blind. He cast out evil spirits out of their overwhelmed victims. He cleansed lepers of their leprosy. He healed the sick of their diseases. He gave strength and, and freedom and mobility to people who were paralyzed. He gave voice to those that were mute. He did some kind of fun things. He let you catch fish where you shouldn't be able to catch any fish. He proved he's the creator of the weather and the water because he could tell a a stormy sea to just settle yourself down and it would do it. He could walk on the waves as if they were solid ground and then he would sit on the shoreline and turn a little boy's lunch into a a picnic for 5,000 and more. Perhaps greatest of all, three separate times, Jesus brought folks back from the dead. He called Lazarus out of his tomb. He gave a a little dead girl back to her father. And at one time, Jesus stopped the funeral procession and sent the dead body walking back home. In verse 22, Peter uses three different words for those kinds of events. He uses the words miracles, and wonders and signs. Each of those means something just slightly different. The idea of miracles is that they were of supernatural origin. Wonders means they were astonishing. They were glorious things to see. And signs, that's the big one. That's actually Peter's point here. 
all of these acts of Jesus were a a sign. They were a token. They were a mark. They're like a, a signpost meant to point you to the spiritual truth that he is the son of God. You know this, Peter says, as you yourselves also know. You want evidence that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah? All the miracles he did during his ministry were undeniable evidence presented right in front of you. And you know it. And then today, Peter would have said, you're seeing even more miracles. God confirmed Jesus during his ministry and God continues to confirm Jesus that day on Pentecost and you know it, you can see it. It's happening right in front of you. So you have no excuse for rejecting him. You have no defense for ignoring him. Your refusal to believe that Jesus is the Messiah defies all reason and all logic because the clear testimony of God's approval was upon his life. And so, what does that mean to you this morning? Because I know there are some who would hear this and say, well, I I wish God would show me miracles and wonders and signs. I wish God would send me the same kind of authentication of Jesus' life now because if that happened in front of me, then I would believe it. Well, do you really think God has not spoken to you? Do you really lack the ability to know his Holy Spirit and the power of that Spirit on display? Because you're sitting right now in a congregation of believers who are called by his Spirit 2,000 years after these events happened. And you can hold his word in your hand, the very message of God for your life in your hands and hear the same proclamation of the gospel that Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of God. He is the savior. He is your only hope. You can hear the same thing those people heard that day. And so I can say with confidence, with Peter, God sent Jesus Christ into this world and the life he lived confirms that he is the savior of sinners and you know it if you refuse to believe jesus christ it defies all reason and logic because the clear testimony of god's approval was upon him and in the deepest part of you and the jury of your heart it demands a verdict regarding jesus he has come to save sinners and you are a sinner you need him and you know it God authenticates Jesus by his life. So Peter begins here with what they know and then sort of adroitly moves from what they know Jesus did to here's what you know you did. Or seen another way in verse 22, God confirms and authenticates Jesus by his life. And now in verse 23, God authenticates Jesus by his death. You understand, of course, Verse 23 is going to answer some unasked questions the people hearing this sermon were thinking in their minds. Right? If Jesus was the Messiah, then why would he die? Why did he allow himself to be arrested? Why didn't he just overthrow the nation's evil leaders? How could the Messiah die on the cross? And Peter offers an answer in verse 23 in two parts. Look at it. Him, 
being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. The first part of that verse assures us the death of Jesus Christ was God's plan from before creation. It is the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Even prior to the sin of Adam and Eve, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was set forward to be an atoning sacrifice for sinners like Adam and Eve. This is the fulfillment of all of the promises of a suffering servant in the Old Testament. Places like Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 or Zechariah 12, all of them told us of a Messiah who would suffer, who would be pierced, who would be, Isaiah says, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. This is God's plan. The death of Jesus has never been plan B. In Revelation, it describes Jesus as he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This is the first plan. This is the only plan there's ever been. Even though we're sinners and we're rebels against him, God and his goodness and grace took counsel with himself and determined to save sinners through the atoning death of his son. And so that means that during his trial, every strike to Jesus' face was according to the plan of God. Every cord of the scourge that ripped open wounds on his back, every piercing thorn driven into his head, every staggering step that he made down the road as he was carrying the beam to his own cross, the nails in his hands and his feet, the spear driven into his side, all carried out the plan of God to save sinners. Each moment of Jesus' arrest and trials and crucifixion was planned according to the divine script of God himself. God is in perfect control. There is not one rebellious speck of dust falling outside of God's plan. Or as R.C. Sproul said, there's not one maverick molecule in this universe doing its own thing. When God created the heaven and the earth, part of that creation was overseeing the growth of the very tree that would be fashioned into the cross. When they went to make the the nails to pierce his hands and feet, they found that metal in the ground because God at creation put it there on purpose. When you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, it is not a tribute to the ingenuity of Jewish enemies. It's not a a testimony to the, the Romans' tragic art of execution. The cross of Jesus Christ is the place where God himself determined to pour out his wrath on sin. If you ever wonder, you know, well, at whose hands did Jesus suffer? Well, you could make an argument that it was at the hands of the Jewish leaders. You could make an argument that it was the Romans. A better argument could be made that it was because of me. But here in this verse, we know without a shred of doubt that he suffered at the hands of God the Father because he took the place of sinners like you and me so that he could absorb the wrath of God that was designated and against us. 
And yet, when you look at verse 23, there is this massive juxtaposition where, where Peter shows the sovereignty of God through eternity past and also the responsibility of man in the present time, working together with God's will in perfect harmony. Just like Peter said in verse 22, that God authenticated Jesus through the, a life of miracles and you know it. Now he says in verse 23 that God authenticated Jesus through his death on the cross, and you did it. Look at verse 23 again. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken with wicked hands and have crucified and slain. Yes, Jesus was delivered to death by the plan of God, but let there be no doubt that God holds all men responsible for their sins. Peter, not long before this, was actually denying the Lord out of fear. Now he's filled with the Spirit and he condemns these men to their face and he's doing it publicly at that on the busy streets of Jerusalem. And today, 2,000 years later, we, we try to sort of reconcile with this, this, this question of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Like we, we want to say, well, we have to struggle to make these agree. If we would just listen to Peter, he says, look, they agree. There's really no debate about this. There's never a conflict in this truth. The same God who is in control of history also holds you responsible for your thoughts and your words and your actions. And so Peter looks at these Jews in the streets of Jerusalem and says, God sent him performing miracles and wonders and signs and you knew this and yet you wicked men took him and you killed him anyway. You've perpetrated the single greatest crime in the history of the world. You've committed the cold-blooded murder of the most perfect man ever to walk the earth. He has no intention of letting them off the hook for their wickedness. Actually, he, he doubles down on this indictment later on in the sermon in verse 36. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus, who you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. So God authenticated Jesus by his life. And you're accountable to God because you know the life of Jesus. God authenticated Jesus by his death. And you're accountable to God because, you know, we're responsible for the death of Jesus. And now he moves on the argument forward that God authenticates Jesus by his resurrection in verse 24. Whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. This is the message of the resurrection. Peter would not be done preaching the gospel on the day of Pentecost unless he declared the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There's no good news without it. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the keystone moment in, in Peter's sermon here at Pentecost. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is, is the moment we celebrate this Sunday and Every Sunday, the reason that we meet on Sunday and call it the Lord's Day is because that's the empty tomb day. 
Listen, this church should be full if we know that the tomb was empty. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the primary subject matter for all the apostolic preaching throughout the book of Acts, and it's the theme of all gospel preaching today. While it is true, we proclaim the the perfect life and the sacrificial death of Jesus. You understand, that death accomplishes nothing without the resurrection. We might, as Peter did, mention his miraculous life, but the the greatest miracle, the highest wonder, the supreme sign is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is what sets Jesus apart. Nobody else does this. Look, we talked earlier about there's three times in the ministry of Jesus where, where he brought others out of death and back into life. He did it with Lazarus, with Jairus' daughter and the, the, the widow woman's son. And each of them rose from the grave temporarily. They rose to die again. Even the greatest men of faith die and are buried and their bodies stay buried. Peter in this sermon actually uses King David as an example in verse 29. He says, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. You want to look up to someone and wonder if the resurrection is uniquely about Jesus? There's nobody to look up to more than King David. We can go dig him up and ask him if you want because he's still in there. Every other tomb is full or it's waiting to be filled. You know that you have loved ones who have died and are buried and you you also need to embrace the fact that somewhere on this planet is a six-foot patch of dirt with your name on it. But being dead three days and then rising again to eternal life, that empty tomb is the hallmark act which authenticates the work of Jesus Christ as Savior. Listen, if the resurrection was not true, the impact it would have on the Christian faith is is fatal, right? It's such a vital doctrine that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says essentially, look, if Christ hasn't risen, then our preaching is vain, your faith is empty, this book is full of lies, I'm a liar, you're bound for hell, there's nobody more miserable than us. As one preacher said, if Christ is not risen, then nothing matters. But if Christ is risen, then there's nothing else that matters. And so the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the central theme of all the apostles preaching in Acts. It's it's front and center here at the Sermon on Pentecost. You'll actually see if you go through this whole sermon, there's one verse, verse 23, devoted to the crucifixion of Jesus. And there's about 12 verses, verses 24 through 36, that have the theme of his resurrection. There are so many ways the resurrection is the vital truth of Christian faith. But let me just mention two of them to you. First, the resurrection is the confirmation of God that the death of Jesus Christ was payment in full for the price of our sins. In Romans 6.23, you're probably familiar with the passage. It says the wages of sin is death. 
You get that word wages, right? It's a payment. You worked to receive wages. In this case, you've worked so hard and diligently at sinning and rejecting God that Paul says the wages, your payment for the sins you've committed is death. That paycheck is coming. And yet if Jesus came to pay the price of your sins, he must die for you, which is what he did on the cross. That's the price that you owe. But if he remains dead, how do you ever know payment in full has been made for your sins? The resurrection is confirmation that the death of Jesus was accepted as payment in full for the price of our sins. Second, the resurrection of Jesus is the confirmation that he has the ability to give you eternal life. That same passage that says the wages of sin is death goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. To give eternal life, he must have defeated death. Listen, if your faith is in Jesus and he did not rise from the dead. Like if your faith is in a 2,000 year old corpse in the tomb, then your faith is just as dead and rotten as that corpse would be. Jesus must live eternally if he's going to give eternal life to those who trust him. And so he can offer eternal life because he defeated death and life is his to give. A simple message of Peter becomes sort of a pattern for the sermons that follow, right? A very, very simple pattern. God sent him, you killed him, God raised him. Verses 25 through 31, Peter uses David's Psalm 16 as scriptural proof that the Messiah would rise. In verse 32, he says, all the disciples are witnesses. In verse 33, he says, all the things the crowd is seeing that day are a testimony, they're evidence of the resurrection. And the Holy Spirit who moved the apostles to speak that day also gave power to this message. Listen, before Peter is even done preaching this sermon, the Holy Spirit has moved in the crowd, convicting sinners so that they, they cut Peter off. Like, I know right now you're waiting for me to be done and so we can have a song so there'll be an invitation. Listen, these people could not wait. They cut Peter off in verse 37. It says, right as he was preaching. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked to their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? We get it. God sent him. We killed him. God raised him. Now what? Is all hope gone? Is it too late for us? By the way, do you see how they've gone from calling Jesus' disciples drunks to calling them Brothers? Oh, brothers, we've rejected the Messiah. We've we've killed our Savior. What have we done? What can we do? You can see their panic, right? In verses 34 and 35, Peter shows Jesus is at God's right hand until his enemies are subdued under his feet. And now they know with assurance, beyond any doubt, they are his enemies. 
They are the ones who rejected him. They are the ones who crucified him. They thought that they would be rid of him once and for all. But now he is risen and God is ready to pour out his wrath on all Jesus' enemies. And you can't run. You can't go into hiding. But here's what you can do in verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the resurrection is so vital to the Christian faith that even the symbolic act that Peter says they need to do, right? Repent of your sins and be baptized. That symbolic act of baptism pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's saying that your old self is dead and buried and you've been raised with him to walk a new life. So Peter's answer to them when they say desperately, what can we do? His answer is, repent of your sins and be baptized. Identify yourself with the resurrected Jesus who is the Messiah. Reading the remainder of this chapter, you'll find out on this day, 3,000 people were convicted of their sins and persuaded that Jesus is the Messiah, is their Savior. They repented of their sins, including the worst sin of all, rejecting him. They repented and they believed that Jesus, God's Son, and they trusted him to give them everlasting life because he rose from the grave and proved life is his to give. And again, you might think, well, that's great for them for their day. Like, I'm sure that was an excellent sermon for a bunch of Jews in the streets of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. But what's it mean for me? Y'all, it means everything for you. Listen, the message was not just about them, and it was not just for them, nor did Peter intend for this message to be just for them. Look at verse 39. For this promise is unto you and to your children and to all those that are far off. That's you. Even as many as the Lord our God shall call. It's my prayer that God does with this message what I am utterly incapable of doing. Listen, I can say the words but this message, it has to go beyond your ears and actually penetrate your heart. But what I can ask is, do you know that this message is for you? Do you know that the miraculous and sinless life of Jesus was for you? Do you know that the sin-bearing death of Jesus on the cross was both for you and because of you? Do you know that the glorious resurrection of Jesus is a promise to you that you repent of your sins and you will have eternal life in him by trusting the one who rose for you? Listen, we will have an invitation. If you want to come during the song, you can. If you want to come talk to me afterward, you're welcome to. But there is really no need for you to wonder, well, what should I do? You know the answer, right? Right here it is, repent of your sins, trust Jesus as your Savior, be baptized in his name. That's a promise to us. It's a promise to people far off, as many as the Lord will call. If you turn from your sin and trust Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection is your assurance that you can have everlasting life with him.